1: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Indiana Jones and the Lady from Fleabag edition. It's Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. On today's show, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It's the fifth and presumably last, question mark, question mark, installment in the franchise. It returns an 80-year-old Harrison Ford, uh, this time teamed up with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And then the indie film writer director Boots Riley, he also returns, this time with a visionary TV show, I'm a Virgo, about a 13 foot tall boy making his way in a hyper capitalist, pre apocalyptic world. Uh, it's on Prime. And then finally, the fate of TCM, Turner Classic Movies, the rare private media entity that is also arguably, in its way, a public trust. Uh looked like it might be going the way of the, I don't know, Studebaker, Dodo, you you pick, but um, now looks like it might survive. We discuss it. Um, joining me today is Julia Turner of the L.A. Times. Hey, Julia.
2: Hello, hello. Very happy to be here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy Independence Day. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana.
0: Hey, hey, Steven.
1: Dying to know what both of you think about these uh, three subjects, so let's make a show. All right, the original one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, came out in 1981. Uh, It was an homage to the old serials that Spielberg and Lucas had loved as kids, and it's still, I guess in my estimation, but I am hardly alone, one of the greatest and most perfect action films ever made. Uh, It's just a sheer miracle of wit and pacing and brio, all of it. Well, Here we are 40 years later, Indy's in his 60s in the script. Of course, Harrison Ford is 81 uh, in the movie. He's retiring as a university professor when he's dragooned by his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, into searching for some Archimedean thingamajiggy that confers godlike powers on its bearer. He's reluctant to go, understandably, but he realizes how urgent it is when he sees he's in a race for it with a former nemesis. It won't surprise you. He's a Nazi. The movie, and this might surprise you, was directed by James Mangold. In the scene we're about to hear, our two heroes, Indy and Helena, are racing through the streets of Tangier. They're trying to catch the bad guy. You hear them shouting at each other over the commotion, and you'll also hear from their sidekick, Teddy. Let's listen. You think he'd be proud of this? Ah! Your father, his only daughter, selling her soul for bail money. Sounds quite good are like that.
2: And it's not all bail money. Some of it's gambling debt. That's you not Teddy. Elena! No!
1: Helena! How did you end up like this?
2: What do
1: you mean? daring, beautiful, self-sufficient? <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Oh, my. I'm back in the multiplex. <laughs> Dana, Dana, let me start with you. I mean, it gives nothing away, I think, to say that the MacGuffin here is like the capacity for a fissure in time. And the theme is whether or not the past is better left uh, past. Uh, it, you know, it, there's a degree of meta self-consciousness there. I mean, the whole movie begins with uh, the CGI delusion of Harrison Ford uh, still in his forties uh creepy enthralling, what'd you make of this whole thing?
0: I mean, I was surprised to see uh getting online after a weekend away that there's a lot of argument about this movie about not only its quality, it seems like there's a very stark divide between people who are saying this is a tired, creaky uh, resurrection of a franchise that didn't need to be resurrected and people who, like me, if you read my Slate review of it, are saying, okay it's not the best Indiana Jones movie, it is by far not the worst, it's fun to see this character again, and the whole thing is an enjoyable summer ride, which is pretty much how I found it. And then a second debate that's happening about the movie, which has less to do with its quality than its cost, because this was an incredibly expensive film. The the budget that I saw quoted was $2 Hundred ninety five million million. And so even though it had a decent opening weekend for a normal sized movie, it seems very unlikely that it's going to make back its immense budget, which starts a whole different fight than the one about, you know, does Indiana Jones deserve to be renewed, which is, you know, why do movies cost so much? And why does the entire film industry depend on these giant tent poles that couldn't possibly make back their budgets? So we can talk about both things. But I'm pro this movie. I saw it with my editor at Slate, Forrest Wickman, knowing that I was going to be writing on it, knowing that we're both big Indiana Jones fans and were kind of excited to see it and didn't even hate Indiana Jones 4 from, I believe it was from 2008, which is widely regarded as the worst movie in the franchise. I agree that it's the worst, but still this character is so endearing and this world is so fun to revisit. And I personally thought that Phoebe Waller-Bridge from Fleabag made sense as Indy's goddaughter and brought something funny and fresh into the franchise. It's not directed by Spielberg, and you can sense that in the action sequences. They feel more rote than his do. Although they have some wit in the, the planning and the choreography of the chase, they don't have the kind of cinematic wit that Spielberg is able to bring to to action sequences. So I agree it's too long, but what summer movie is that not true of? I agree that it could have done with a couple fewer vehicle chases. We've got chases in every possible wheeled or flying vehicle you could imagine. Uh, but I still had a really good time and felt like this was a more fitting send off for the character than any of the previous movies. So I'm a, pretty much a pro.
1: Julia, uh, Dana was uh, pretty taken with this. Um, what do you make of this three hundred million dollar uh, extravaganza?
2: Oh man, this movie is a throwback, and it feels almost intentionally throwbacky. In that, so many of its action sequences and effects feel less. CGI sludgy than I've come to expect from my summer action blockbusters. There's not a lot of like spires of towers growing downwards from a looming cloud and things zipping through the air that are a different weird shape than the things that zip through the air. And the last thing I saw you know, just the retroness of it the fact that it's set in various versions of the past um, was a, a breath of fresh air to me. Of course, the, the counterpoint to that sense of more practical effects happening, there's an early, very bravura, uh, made-me-laugh-a-lot chase sequence through a parade-slash-protest celebrating m- men landing on the moon and protesting the Vietnam War <laughs> that involves uh, a very comical deployment of a horse that I loved that just did not feel like a 2023 action sequence to me and was very entertaining and charming. Um, But before that, we have an action sequence that includes a a digitally de-aged Harrison Ford face. So you're sort of confronted with a retro film aesthetic and uh, the kind of most creepy of modern digital filmmaking technology all at once. But I'm with Dana. I thought Phoebe Waller-Bridge had the exact right analog energy for this. She has her own charisma. She holds her own with Harrison Ford. Um, The movie felt slow at first. Like, I checked my watch more than you want. Uh, But as I settled into it, I really enjoyed it and found it old-fashioned and heartwarming. And it's absolute box office catastrophe is disheartening because it means we're going to probably get more sludgy gray spires growing from the sky.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, It's funny. I mean, I have really admired James Mangold since he made Heavy, which I think won Sundance in, like, let's say 95 in the heyday of Sundance. Um, He's just not Spielberg, right? Spielberg is an artist with the camera. He has... Bodies and objects and the camera all in motion at once, and you're never confused, right? You're not only never confused, you're completely lost and caught up in it. I mean, he is the greatest at that. Really, he may be the greatest, and certainly among the three or four that are the greatest. I mean, Keaton would be another one, right? But um, it's the age old problem. If you bring in a, a director of humanist impulses like Mangold, um, you get those moments, which are extraordinary. So Phoebe waller is perfect in this movie. I loved everything about her presence and her performance. I thought as written, it was a wonderful part. She brought it to life. Um, there was no creepy sexualizing of her. Um, she's his goddaughter. I think they handled that incredibly well. And definitely, I love that she's, you know, I mean, she's in the, in the tradition of the original Karen Allen, right? Like the super ultra capable wisecracker who doesn't buy into them to the extent he even does the macho myth of Indy. And yet, you know, is the perfect partner for him in The Adventures. I mean, it was just kind of great the way it worked. The problem is, the more is more ethic of it when you don't really know why you're doing it for a fifth time. Um, you know, you just throw everything at it. There are too many chases. They tend to be lumbering. Mangold's not an action director. Um, and the original was at one fifty-five. The it was, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was an hour and fifty-five minutes. You ne- never—the idea that in that movie you would check your watch. I mean, that script just flows from beat to beat to beat, from beginning to end. And um, I, I had a real problem with that in this one. For long stretches, I was bored. So I—I I thought, you know, bloat is always a problem for you know second installments, much less fifth installments. I, unfortunately, I fall on the other side of the fence. I I didn't really enjoy this movie, other than other than her performance.
2: I think part of it for me is that I saw it with my kids, and they had done a full Indiana Jones film festival all week long and watched all three and really enjoyed it, and they they
1: loved it. Mm, of course, yeah. So
2: I think it's probably a B for me, but it was a pretty enjoyable B.
0: I think I have more affection for the original franchise maybe than either of you, Or although it sounds like Steve loved the first movie. But I think th- my history with Indiana Jones maybe makes me not the most objective judge of this franchise because I do feel real affection. I mean, I really was a, a teenage movie nerd when the first one came out, maybe 13, 14, and saw it multiple times that summer, you know... Probably started in part to love classic film the way I did because of all the citations that that movie has. And so there's so much goodwill carrying over from that, even though some of the sequels, including the second movie, Temple of Doom... I think don't really stand up that well to a rewatch. You know that movie is makes one really uncomfortable now because of its xenophobia and just how strangely it treats the uh, you know all the the foreign characters. You could really argue that there's a, a thread of colonialism and racism running through the whole series, but again, it's probably something that I'm willing to give more of a pass because of how old the series is and how young I was when I first discovered it. I mean, here's something I can stand up for as of contemporary relevance in, in this movie that isn't creaky, which is that the, the villain, as in the first Raiders, and I think a couple of the, the subsequent ones, is a Nazi. But, you know, what it means to be fighting this nostalgic Nazi, which is what Mad, Mads Mikkelsen plays quite wonderfully, I think, as the villain, means something very different in 2023 than it did in 1981, right? I mean, it's it's no longer sort of throwing back to to the enemy of our parents' generation. It really is the, the current... <laughs> enemy that, that we're fighting right now. And I think that the way the Mads Mikkelsen character is written, which is, you know, at, at some points, he even seems to voice the sentiment that Hitler didn't go hard enough at his fascism. And that's why, you know, the Thousand Year Reich never happened. There really is a sense that he is he is a nostalgist. He's somebody who's looking back on the golden days. Uh, there's also a, a very disturbing racist moment where he mistreats a, a black character in the, in the movie. And that seems like a moment when the this the script is is attaining a kind of contemporary relevance that even the first Indiana Jones didn't. Hmm. And there are even, I won't talk about what they are because I don't want to spoil it, but there are character beats in this movie that really make up for, you know, those overly long summer movie bloated feeling chase sequences. There really are some moments uh, in particular between Indiana Jones and, and the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character that do more, I think, to get into the character's humanity than your average summer blockbuster does. And that kind of blockbuster, as Julia says, has has gone the way of the dinosaur. So if you want to say goodbye to a really special dinosaur, I think this movie is, is a nice <laughs> way to do it. <laughs>
1: oh, that's so lovely. I feel like
2: if you want to say goodbye to a very special dinosaur, it feels like a children's book that <laughs> you should write.
1: <laughs> I mean, I have to say you're like your little... You know, your little dinosaur has won me over I mean, I really was on the fence And I was like, am I kind of digging this? I kind of just want to bail I mean, I really was just the whole time Riding that fence But you nudged me over I mean, it, I agree he's one of the enduring Film characters of all time um, uh, Alright, so uh, check it out I suppose is where we're at uh, Indiana Jones on the Dial of Destiny It's out in theaters uh, Yeah, let us know Alright, moving on All right. Now is the moment in our podcast. We discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do you got?
0: Stephen, we only have one item of business this week, and that is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to be talking about a piece that was making the rounds on social media recently. It was in The New Yorker. It was called The Case Against Travel, and it was written by one Agnes Cajard, a philosopher we've discussed before on this show. Uh, we talked about a piece in The New Yorker about her personal life and debated that, This time it's a piece by her about travel in the same magazine, The New Yorker. Agnes Coyard has been a controversial figure on social media, but we're not focusing on that as much this week. Instead, we're going to talk about the ideas in this piece about travel, which questions whether travel really does have all the virtues we usually assign to it. So we'll quickly summarize her piece and then get into our own experiences with travel and talk about those experiences, whether they've really enriched our lives or done whatever travel is supposed to do, or are we just fooling ourselves? If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that conversation at the end of the show. And if you're not, you can become one by signing up at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments, like the one I just described. And of course, you get unlimited access to all of the wonderful writing on Slate.com. You never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. And even more important, you'll be supporting us, our magazine, and the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships really matter to keep Slate going. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, back to the show.
1: Okay, well, I Am a Virgo is an absurdist comedy series from Boots Riley, the hip-hop frontman and indie auteur behind the remarkable film, Sorry to Bother You. His first TV show is now on Amazon Prime. It stars Jarrell Jerome as a 19-year-old black teenager who happens to be 13 feet tall. He's a giant and a very gentle and innocent one who's been carefully sheltered by his well-meaning aunt and uncle, but he's ready to discover reality beyond the safety of the four very large walls they've constructed for him. In the clip we're about to hear, his name is Cootie. Cootie's aunt and uncle are warning him about that outside world. They show him news clippings that tell stories of giants throughout history that were attacked by angry mobs. In this scene, you'll also hear a ritualistic chant that they sometimes do as a family to soothe themselves. Let's listen.
2: There's one just like you every generation somewhere. People are always afraid. And you are a 13-foot-tall black man.
1: They fear you. They were excited to see me, Mama. They were excited. Come on. No. Heart, head, no. hands, feet. No, no no, heart, no, no.
0: Not tonight. I don't want to do that tonight. You know, Cody, soon people are going to try to figure
1: out how to use you. And when they can't use you no more, they're going to try to get rid of you. Julia, what did you make of this really extraordinary, um, however you slice it, TV show?
2: I wished that I enjoyed it as much as I admired its ambition, is my answer to that question. <laughs> Go to Dana.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, a punt. Uh, okay, Dana, what did you, uh, you make of I'm a Virgo?
0: I mean, I regret to say that my reaction is somewhat similar, but I'll try to elaborate it somewhat so we can (laughs) dig into it. I mean, first of all, I am glad that I watched as much of it as I did, and I'll probably finish it. I'm on the sixth episode now of seven. I just started the sixth episode, uh, which interestingly, the sixth episode, it's, I think, one of the best ones. And that's never a good thing to hear about a TV show like, oh, you just have to watch a few hours before you start to understand what it's about. But this show is so complex and ambitious and juggling so many things and is so messy, sometimes in a good way, sometimes not, that it does take quite a while to gather all the fragments together into something that starts to make sense. And episode six happens to be written by Michael R. Jackson, who I don't think we've talked about on this show before, but he's the creator of A Strange Loop, this first off Broadway and later Broadway show that is really original and not like any other musical I've ever seen. And when I heard that he had written an episode, I decided to watch through to that one. And I think that that one, six out of seven, is where some of the disparate strands in this show start to to weave together in a way that made more sense for me but let's let's put it this way I think both in his movie sorry to bother you and here in this show i'm a virgo boots Riley is a better idea mixer than he is a storyteller and uh and so that may not be something that really entices you into watching the show but Mixing ideas is a pretty uh, important and unusual thing to do right now in culture, right? I mean, he comes from the world of hip-hop and was the front man for two different hip-hop bands. And this show has a very hip-hop sensibility in that it um, it has a very, you know, mordant sense of humor, that it's very, um, you know, socially aware. It's really a, a piece of, in a way, propaganda. And the show takes that on and talks about, you know, what propaganda is and how that relates to art in several different episodes. And it's just a remix of all kinds of things. So it brings in, you know, animation, um, puppetry, because there's, you know, all kinds of practical effects used to show how how big the 13 foot tall character is. Forced perspective, you know, all kinds of non-digital ways of, of playing with size and scale that are really fun to watch. The design sensibility is great. The clothes that the giant wears is great because his mother has to sew his own Clothes, since there's nothing big enough for him on the market, so he's got this whole you know crazy patchwork style sensibility. Um, there's lots of great needle drops. Um, there's there's beautiful things to look at in this show and to think about, but you have to have a lot of patience to keep moving with it because there's so much going on that narratively, I don't think it really succeeds. And here's an example of that without spoiling anything, a really driving element of several episodes of this series is a tragic event that happens to this character who's one of the giant's friends. And to me, this friend group was so poorly defined and so kind of quickly sketched that I barely knew who the different friends were, like what their names were and what their you know jobs or different you know relationships to the main character were. And suddenly a tragic event occurs to one of these barely known to us characters and it drives almost everything that happens for the rest of that episode. So I think that there's there's some really basic script problems with a lot of these episodes where we just simply don't have a through line and a character to follow. And I feel like it's a very bougie thing to say about a show that has so much on its mind and so much that's interesting to say about capitalism. I mean, you know, this Just as Sorry to Bother You was a pretty explicitly Marxist movie. So I think that this show has, you know, that kind of really political... Chip on its shoulder, and there's a character, uh, a activist, a young woman named Jones, who's a friend of the main character, who you know is constantly making these these speeches at various gatherings in Oakland. She is basically a, a, an activist. And uh, so the movie really wears its ideas like right there on its sleeve. It's not sort of subtly folding them into narrative. And sometimes that's effective. Sometimes it's not. But it doesn't really draw you in in terms of can't wait to start the next episode.
1: Mm, OK, well, good news. I, I loved it. I thought it, it, uh, he's an idea guy. He's very nonlinear in his storytelling. Uh, that all is very true. I didn't think it would have worked. As I wrote in my notes, I said, if it weren't funny... If it weren't tender, it wouldn't work. I think it's both of those things. I think it's a very, for all of its absurdity and gigantism, for lack of a better word, and motley, it's a very tender portrait of an innocent, oversheltered kid, right? So I couldn't be more different from this character, this world, uh, and I'm not trying to say that in any way I am other than that. Like, I, kn- I knew what it was like to be a 19 year old who'd been massively oversheltered, and to me, the kernel of truth of that part of it really hit home i was also laughing consistently i disagree i actually think the friend group is i understand what you mean there's a kind of conceit to the show which is that he's never been in the real world these caregivers his aunt and uncle are super super protective and um he finally can't take it anymore he's just 19 and he's ready and he he exits those sort of the confines of the world they've constructed for him and they're the, the scene that Boots Riley didn't write is really interesting. He didn't write the scene of the first encounter being of terrified people, right? Which would have been excruciatingly painful and the obvious one to write. Like, you know, it instead he just falls in with this friend group who are like, oh, cool, we're going to hang out with the giant. And I, I loved that in a way. It dispensed with the obvious thing that could have been written by Chat GBT. Also, it brings home, I think, what... Uh, Um, Tyler Austin Harper argued in Slate that this is an allegory for the quote-unquote big black man, right? This sort of, in our culture, highly symbolic figure of, like, masculinity and, you know, prowess that is also the, you know, the primary target of white race phobia and what the responsibilities are of a caregiver to this person who achieving physical maturity wants to go out into the world and they're older and they understand that the world can turn on such a person on a dime. And so I really responded to it. And the second thing I would also say is that, first of all, I love the aesthetic, right? Like this is clearly like, you know, combination of hip hop, comic books, like junk culture, while being a satire on all of the above. And it's, I cannot believe that I've lived long enough to see a completely, totally unapologetically revolutionary black Marxist sensibility being given a voice on a major media platform to produce such an allegory. Uh, I just think it's wildly, wildly original and shows that PTV still has somewhere to go.
2: I'm so glad that you liked it. Because I spent the whole time watching it being like, how many times on our frickin' podcast have I said, oh, please make original ideas. Please, uh, you know, don't just show us the same thing. And this is certainly not that. I like the the courage of its originality. Um, I'm not surprised, Dana, to hear that it does eventually come together. But, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, 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 there is some obligation to pull it together sooner, I think, in terms of winning your argument, it, winning your audience over to experience your argument of uh, Marxism on Amazon. So mm. I felt disappointed in it for that, even though there were glimmers and moments. I mean, I think Gerald Jerome's performance is really interesting and great. I think some of the... Um, production design. As Dana mentioned, the clothes he he wears are incredible. The kind of ephemera of the dystopian world has, you know, notes of idiocracy with its own delightful twist. But um, I just, I don't know. It just didn't work for me. I just felt like I was watching um, an art project rather than art.
1: Oh, I loved watching the art project. I mean, I also think it you know, in the same way that you see the Indiana Jones movie through the eyes of your kids at the age that they're at now, I see this through my kid's sensibility. I mean, I I hear so much of what they're saying and believing echoed in this in a way that it isn't in practically anything else. You know, sense of a totally broken world that they've been brought into, that only a total dry erase of the whole botched experiment. And like the okay boomers disappearing forever, can the whole thing be corrected for a total impatience with? We'll make it slightly less cruel, which Boots Riley has no truck for. I I also I have to say that like there's there is an aesthetic precedent. I think in I, I wish I could think of more examples than I know there are, but like Repo Man, these kind of alienated young men so alienated from. not only the world, but the storylines mainstream storylines the world is selling them on that that only a very fragmented storytelling s- style will properly indicate what's going on inside them and how like deeply incoherent they find the world around them um, I would say, try it and you know see if you can go with it because something genuinely new and weird is on television right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's something we haven't even touched on that I think is maybe the, the bravest and funniest and smartest thing this show does is that it, kind of racializes the superhero in a way that we haven't seen. I mean, at least I haven't seen in, you know, all of the superhero content we've seen coming at us in that the closest thing to a superhero in the sort of now and sort of dystopic future world that this show takes place in is this character called The Hero, played by Walton Goggins, who doesn't really become a major character until I think too late in the, the seven-episode run, who is both a tech billionaire mogul, right, who lives in this kind of San Francisco lair um, in downtown San Francisco, who at night straps on a jet pack and becomes this, this crusading vigilante who is essentially, you know, picking up black kids off the street and, you know, punishing them for, Small perceived infractions. So he's a kind of a cop, right? He's a superhero. He's a cop, and he's a sort of Elon Musk s tech billionaire, which is a kind of brilliant conception for a villain. I think part of the show's um, narrative work that it has to do is to incorporate that villain better into the universe. But that is beautiful. The Oakland setting is beautiful, which we also haven't mentioned. It takes place in Oakland where Boots Riley lives and where his movie also took place. And the sense of place, if you know Oakland at all, is just glorious. So there's so much that this show has going on that's that's really good. But to me, I have to agree with Julia. A part of me just, I need a, a narrative to pull me from one episode to the next. That said, I will probably finish all seven half-hour episodes. And I will certainly be looking out to see what Boots Riley does next.
1: All right, it's I'm a Virgo. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. Check it out. Let us know what you thought. All right, moving on.
2: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13.
1: Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Okay, Dana, I will turn to you very quickly on this because I know you're a huge, huge uh, partisan booster of Turner Classic Movies, otherwise known as TCM. It was a, it's a cable channel, of course. It was launched by Ted Turner. And recently there were some intimations that it might be um, going out of business. It might be um, shuttered. Uh, one of the primary and most alarming of which was a, a guy named Charlie Tabesh, who'd worked there for a long time, and had done a lot of their programming, looked like he was being laid off, other high-profile layoffs. To the rescue apparently came Spielberg, Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, who have agreed to help guide programming and curation at TCM going forward. It looks like now it has been rescued, but it's certainly an occasion to talk about what it's meant to you as a film lover and film critic, what it's meant to the world as a kind of public trust, preserving cinematic history, and making it widely, widely available for free, other than, of course, subscribing to the cable system that it's on. Dana, TCM, go.
0: I mean, honestly, I think as a business story, it's almost too early for us to talk about this because it's very unclear what the future of TCM is right now. I don't think it's quite true that it was in danger of being shuttered. Of course, that was, you know, the fear of fans when they heard about these layoffs. I believe that the staff of, of TCM went from 90 to 20 people in a single day when David Zaslav, who's the Warner Brothers Discovery CEO, who's been a lot in the news lately um, because of his various because of his relation to the strike and, you know, his his various um bad businesses' decisions, or bad at least from the point of view of the the consumer, maybe not from the stockholder's point of view. Anyway, uh, when Zaslav made these layoffs, which was, I guess, late June, um, there was a wave of fear that TCM was in danger, that it was going to be downsized or disappear, and that the channel as we know it would, would no longer exist. Only a few days after that, about a week later, it started to seem like the opposite was true. Charles Tabesh, who you just mentioned, a longtime director of programming there, was rehired after having been fired, and uh, and as you said, these three auteurs stepped in, um, saying, you know, for it's like the, the auteur superheroes stepping in, saying, free of charge, we're going to help program this channel, but. It doesn't seem like great news for an organization like TCM that you have to depend on things like hero tours stepping in to do free programming for you. It doesn't seem like a great vote of confidence in the future of that channel. So I guess we're using this business story, which is still up in the air as to what it means, more as an excuse to just talk about TCM, which recently celebrated its 25th anniversary, I guess, a few years ago. So it's coming up on 30 years of existence now. And... I mean, in, in my mind, has really become one of the closest things we have to, to what the Cinémathèque Française is, you know, to to French cinema or to, to world cinema in France. It really is the closest thing we have to some sort of public trust, you know, preserving film history. And I think as a, as a longtime viewer and fan of the channel and somebody who really hangs on to cable just so I can have TCM on tap whenever I need it, that it's done that incredibly well. It's it's really been an extraordinary force for um, you know for, to bringing new people to old movies for the last thirty years. Uh, the channel in in my house is something that I wouldn't say it's always on because there's no TV channel that's always on but to the point that there is wallpaper TV ever in my house uh, TCM is that wallpaper TV I remember an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson a few years back maybe when Phantom thread came out where he mentioned that and said you know oh I always have TCM on in my office or my home or something like that and, and feeling like yes Paul I'm with you there it's something that if you turn it on even in the middle of a movie or on one of those little bumpers that appears in between movies where they'll play old old shorts or, or little mini documentaries or things like that you will learn something about film history and it will send you off on some some interesting tangent so yes i love tcm it's very dear to me and i think it would be a great loss to culture not only if it disappeared of course that is the case but even if it changed significantly, I think at this point they've found a really great and really diverse set of hosts who know a ton about movies. Uh, they have all kinds of, you know, sort of longstanding traditions, like uh, their Silent Sundays, which, you know, as somebody who's written on silent film is is an important feature to me. And those things have people coming back to the channel. If it were to get suddenly streamlined and changed, I just, I don't think it would gain audience members. I think it would alienate the audience members it already has. And so I really hope that whoever is in charge right now, whether it's Spielberg, Scorsese, and PTA, David Zaslav, Charles Debesh, whoever it is, that they realize that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. TCM is already good. Yeah, I mean,
2: the thing that this story strikes up for me is just where we are and are not in terms of all of our digital archives and particularly the Archive of American Cinema. It's insane that a you know, a small division of a massive company corporation is the place that serves this role in our society. Like there is no guarantee that it will continue to do so. And I think the initial promise of of Netflix back in the ship you a DVD era was like, wow, you can really see anything you want with a Netflix subscription. Like they will send you that CD in that or that DVD in that red envelope. And then when it switched over to streaming, it was like, oh wow, even more convenient. Don't have to deal with the C- the DVDs and the red envelope and the scratches and whatever and so much was available on many different streaming platforms. And as the economics of streaming change so that rather than keeping the entire owned library up forever as part of the assumed potential value of having a streaming service, uh, you know, shows new and old that are less well-performing are being taken off of those platforms. Uh, the kind of cavalier and, seemingly hasty set of decisions around TCM is just deeply alarming. And even if there has been some stop put to it and uh, one of the beloved curators and caretakers has been restored, it's just scary that it could happen, this, this amount of access to film history. It just makes me think not only of how how the ease of access we have to digital culture makes us take for granted that we will always have access to it when that isn't necessarily the case. And so I felt layers of alarm upon following this story. I mean,
1: the funny thing about movies as opposed to literature, right, traditionally construed as print literature, is that all of this apparatus of preservation around books you know, is so highly developed now, you know, by the time the 20th century rolls around. I mean, we have major university libraries, we have archives, we have collections. We, what's irreplaceably unique, like the manuscript of that's the first folio or whatever, so jealously and carefully guarded and preserved. And, you know, this a fundamentally industrial and commercial enterprise of film developed that surprisingly slowly, um, alongside the awareness that these things were enduring classics. Right? I mean, they're in they're in in a digital sense they're easily accessible at least now. In a kind of moral slash aesthetic sense, they're the universal property of mankind as all great works of culture are or should be, and in reality they're privately owned and those are fractious and in some ways very venal or self-centered enterprises that are going to control access for money and to have a, a, both a curatorial and a preservationist mentality at Turner Classic Movies was remarkable. The question of TCM surviving is an urgent one. The more, more the sort of larger and more urgent one is like just even convincing my kids to watch a black and white movie. It seems ridiculous that that's the case. But it it just somehow reproducing in subsequent generations, right, the great tradition of, like, teaching literature, as attenuated as it is now, is just that ongoing challenge of saying, no, 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 no. I know the language is weird, I know that they're wearing weird ruffs and um, live in odd manor houses, or you know, or whatever. I mean, whatever hurdle needs to be gotten over in terms of language-setting preoccupations to get someone back into the imaginative world of the Brontes or Jane Austen or Shakespeare or Chaucer or on and on and on, it's like, that's worth it. Like, it's worth... The the inheritance deepens and becomes richer the, lo- the longer it's passed on in some sense. I mean, it, it, and I hope and pray that that happens for this, you know, 100-year period where films were... Born, right? Like it's just that the birth of a cinematic world produced, you know, enduring masterpieces, and we have to find the proper way to honor and preserve them.
2: Dana, can you tell us one story of something you discovered, or something that surprised you, or something that like challenged your already deep knowledge? I will confess that as a like nonlinear TV watcher, I've like never been a TCM browser. Like, I admire it in the abstract, and um, that is not how I encounter the history of film to the degree that I encounter it at all. But I'd love just, like, one story of, of a moment that you loved your encounters with it.
0: I mean, I have a story that's that may not bring any one title in its wake, but, yeah, I have a very intense personal Connection to TCM. I mean, many memories connected with it. But one period in particular, and I posted about this on the day online when it seemed like you know TCM was being downsized before before the treat Super Trio said they were coming to the rescue before tar- Charlie Tebish was rehired. When it really did seem like okay, this is just a CEO coming in and slashing my beloved favorite channel. I was posting about this story, but right after my daughter was born, it was it was the place that I would stay up all night. You know those crazy. Nights when you have a newborn baby and your hours are completely weird, there was just this really kind of now in my mind wonderful and eu- euphoric period that I remember when we had our couch, our pull out guest couch pulled out in front of the TV. And, you know, when my kid was waking up throughout the night to nurse, I just had TCM on and would and just was in this kind of TCM flow where I would fall asleep to a movie and wake up to a different movie and sometimes not even check what movie it was. And it was sort of like, now they're speaking Russian <laughs> and now it's a silent movie. And wait, there's Barbara Stanwyck. Um, but it was just kind of keeping me company in that flow. And I also remember in particular that the uh, the little, I don't know what you'd call them, but the the channel announcement. You know, the little thing that said you're watching TCM at that time, there were a few different ones with different visuals from old movies, and they were wonderful. I still think of them as the as the classic TCM channel logos. There was one in particular, maybe some listeners who are big TCM fans will remember this, but there was one in particular that was a, a little shot from some old film that was just a, an elevated train in black and white. It looked like it was from a noir movie, you know, running between two high rises or something like that. And underneath it, it would say, watch TCM or something. That's just such a wonderful memory in my life. And and I don't know that I could cite specific titles from that time because, like I said, I did just experience it as a kind of pleasant old movie blur in the, in the background. But here's a, a movie that I discovered on TCM just because I turned it on one time many years later. And it was so damn weird that I had to watch the rest of it and research it and then eventually go back and watch, you know, the beginning part that I had missed And that was uh, this Japanese film from the 60s called Funeral Parade of Roses that's about, it's hard to even say what it's about, but it's sort of a drag retelling of Oedipus Rex (laughs) set in very (laughs) stylish 1960s Tokyo. And, you know, just something that you can imagine how visually crazy and beautiful that would look. And even just the title, Funeral Parade of Roses. Anyway, that's a a movie that I would probably never have come across in life. I would certainly never had an opportunity to see it on the big screen, but caught you know the last 20 minutes of it or something one time on on TCM and as a result went after it but i mean that's one title that came to mind like that channel over the you know couple decades i've been watching it now has brought me so much in the way of of revelation and i'm sure i'm not the only person so i feel strongly not only that it should survive in some form but that it should survive in this form. It shouldn't be slashed from 90 to 20 and turned into some sort of streamlined version of itself. On the contrary, it should be given more money. Everyone should be rehired back and it should be protected and, you know, as a, as a national patrimony. But I know that's not the world that we're living in right now.
1: All right, well, you know, if you like, shoot us your Turner classic movie, your TCM uh, memories, or uh, your, you know, sense of it as a public trust. We'd love to hear from you on this one. Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's move on. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat. Come to life. Follow and listen to VibeCheck wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now is the moment in our podcast and we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have this week?
0: Stephen, my endorsement relates to our Slate Plus segment. So only Slate Plus listeners are going to quite know the context of why I'm endorsing this. But whether or not you're a Slate Plus member, I think you might enjoy it. We're going to be talking about travel, the meaning of travel, and whether travel is actually an enriching experience, as it's chalked up to be in our Slate Plus segment. Uh, So I wanted to mention a really, really nice article that I recently read in Town & Country magazine, which I guess runs a lot of travel writing, uh, about... The Joy of Traveling Solo. That's the title of the piece, The Joy of Traveling Solo. It's by Andre Asiman. And it's really, it's almost like a blog post. Uh, It's just a very personal reflection on a moment that the author remembers about sitting in a piazza in Orvieto, a village uh, in, I believe, in Tuscany. I've actually been to Orvieto, and I'm not a big uh, knower of Italy. I've only been there a couple of times in my life and been to very limited parts of the country. But Orvieto is a town with so much architecture and kind of Italian patrimony that I think anyone in that area goes. And, uh, and so I know the exact spot that Andre Asiman is writing about. He, he is talking about a morning in Orvieto where he's sitting in the piazza where the big incredibly beautiful central church of Orvieto is waiting for a friend to arrive and just talking about how, what he loves about travel is, is not, you know, itineraries or museums or going to see things. uh, But these moments of emptiness that travel allows where Mm. you're just simply experiencing. The Daily Life of Another Place as an Observer. And he just talks about sitting in this cafe, which I can picture exactly where it is, waiting for a friend and how the meaning of travel to him is in that silence and solitude. It's just a really beautiful, simple piece about travel that I think makes the opposite point of the uh, the piece we're about to to talk about in Slate Plus. So The Joy of Traveling Solo by Andre Asiman in Town & Country magazine.
1: That is wonderful. I mean, Andre Aciman, of course, the uh, author of the novel that Call Me by, uh, by Your Name is based on. Right. And a wonderful guy. I was very lucky to meet him. And, um, but also, um, Orvieto's in Umbria. I know that's where, too. Okay, it's you're a, right, you're right. It's magical. Yeah, I cannot wait to read that. Um, how marvelous. Uh, Julia, what do you have?
2: All right. Well, um, despite being the least uh, versed in the Indiana Jones movies of the three of us, I have to share uh, a transitive endorsement via my husband, who was leading my children on that deep dive into the initial three uh, indie movies and who then spent a week lost in this amazing document speaking about the history of film. So in some ways, this connects to two of our topics this week. Uh, But are you guys aware that there is a transcript, a 90-page transcript of a story conference for the original Indiana Jones movie in which George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Larry Kasdan all sit down and figure out what the movie is going to be?
0: Oh, my God. That sounds incredible. No, link Whoa. me up right now. <laughs>
2: yeah. So they it's these three geniuses, and they're sitting down, and they've got a concept, but they don't have a movie, and they talk it all through. What's the meaning of the whip? What's he going to do with it? How's he going to use it? <laughs> How's the whole thing going to come together? And it's just – I mean, I'm thinking about the um, – Virtues of that Beatles documentary we watched last year or a couple years ago, Get Back, um, and, and understanding like, oh wow, this is genius happening in real time. This is the history of art and you get to watch a process doc. Uh, I sense from my husband's response to this, which is available to be read, and then also I think some actors have put together a podcast version where they act it out. <laughs> <laughs> which he said was a little confusing because you can't quite remember who's who because it's not the real guys, obviously. Um, anyway, sounds like an amazing document if this is a series that has meaning for you. And uh, that is my endorsement for this week.
0: That sounds fantastic, that, and I can't wait to get my hands on it.
1: I know. That is amazing. Of course, I'd forgotten that it's a uh, Lawrence Kasdan uh, co-script. That's wonderful. Um So uh, my endorsement this week is uh, I've in in the past endorsed uh, essays by uh, Jessica Riskin, Stanford professor of history whose interests are um, in the history of science. And uh, her latest in the New York Review of Books is um, called A Sort of Buzzing Inside My Head. And it's wonderful because it begins with essentially Alan Turing, who in in some ways invented computing as we know it, you know, theorized what artificial intelligence would be back in the 1940s in a very famous, very seminal uh, paper. And she goes back to that paper and says, it's a much odder, more curious document than people generally remember. mean, you know, it's sort of universally cited and probably very, very rarely reread. And, um, you know, in it, he imagines, I mean, it's the Turing test. It's the document that gives us the idea that if you were to talk to uh, an AI machine of some kind and you didn't know it and you asked it a series of questions and couldn't really determine whether you were talking to a real person or um, or the machine, then some sort of threshold, if not to consciousness, at least some kind of true artificial intelligence had been achieved. And um, she goes through it and she says, "It what's so curious, because Turing himself in the paper imagines such a conversation and what its limits might be, but what its limits might not be. And then Riskin now, in 2023, asks the same or some similar questions of chat GPT, compares Turing's imagined responses in the 40s to an actual purported AI or AI responses now. And she says, my purpose in these comparisons is to show that there's an, an ineffable but stark contrast between Turing's imagined bits of conversation and and the ChatGPT corollaries, ChatGPT's responses have a hollow generic feel, like they were compiled by a committee for some ornamental purpose, whereas Turing's imagined intelligent machine gives off an unmistakable aura of individual personhood, even of charm. And it seems to me that Riskin's intellectual project as I construe it is this attempt to try to understand how in an age of sort of the ascendancy of an empirical way of looking at the world, that, that, that sort of disciplinary authority of the you know, post-war research university moves inexorably in the direction of STEM. And like the colder and more impi- empirical, the better. And something in, like in many ways ineffable about what it is to be human, right? The humanities were inevitably going to attenuate in such an enterprise because at the end of the day, they're committed to... Understanding this unmistakable and expressing this unmistakable aura of individual personhood. And in this insanely rigorous, careful, knowledgeable, and historically informed way, she's going about showing how, you know, personhood is inexorable. Like, we're not reading ourselves of personhood, that there's actually a form of evasion in this mania for empiricism, if I understand existential evasion in a way. And I just find her her work really beautifully realized. Um, so I I really I really recommend this essay. It's sort of buzzing inside my head to the extent that we as a panel have been preoccupied with the question of ChatGPT and what it is and what it isn't. Um, I think uh, uh, and to the extent any all of our listeners are horrified by what might be next when it comes to AI, uh, her work on this issue is just unsurpassably um, acute. So check it out. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Steve.
1: Uh, thank you, Julia. Thank you. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.